Voices of VR podcast. Hello, my name is Ken Pai, and welcome to the Voices of VR podcast. It's a podcast that looks at the future of spatial computing and the ultimate potential of XR. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. In my previous podcast, I was taking a look at how Immersed Space is taking Activity Pub in order to create this persistent social graph into the open metaverse. There's some other emerging protocols, like the AT protocol, that's the authenticated transfer protocol that is running Blue Sky. This is like a decentralized version of Twitter to take all the different aspects of Twitter and make it into an open protocol that then could be used to federate all these different aspects. There's already Mastodon that has a whole federated system that uses Activity Pub, but this is much more focused on decentralized identity. Identity. For example, I can put a DNS text file on kentby.com, and that can be my identity when I'm on Blue Sky's web service. But it also gives the opportunity to have this self-sovereign identity and verifiable identity as you go across these different websites. And it has the potential to have something very similar to what Immersespace is doing to have this persistent social graph as you go across these different websites federated across the open web that could play a part of the future of what we consider to be the metaverse. So back in 2018 and 2019, I went to the archive.org's Decentralized Web Summit and Decentralized Web Camp. I ended up doing 49 interviews with different people who were building the decentralized technologies and architectures for the D-Web or the Decentralized Web. Now, I haven't aired a lot of those different interviews, but I happened to have an interview with Jay Graber, who is currently the CEO of Blue Sky. So back then when I talked to her on July 19th, 2019, Jay at the time was building Happening, which she had aspirations for creating a decentralized social network, but she just wanted to start with events because you have the bootstrapping problem, which is how do you start to get people to join in a whole network? Basically, if there's no one there, it's very difficult to have network effects. So this is a conversation where she's actually talking about a lot of these different principles around the challenges of a decentralized network, the benefits of decentralization, but also the downsides. And so really leaning into all the different potentials of the decentralized architectures. But having applications on the deep web are very difficult because you need to have a streamlined user interface and have something that's totally decentralized is kind of like the antithesis of having easy onboarding. But when Jay was building happening, she was trying to have a centralized React interface and really kneeling the user interface. And so a lot of that same design philosophy has carried forth over Blue Sky, which at this point is still in private beta. It's got around like 58,000 users at this point. It's invite only, but they're still working out this AT protocol, the authenticated transfer protocol, and basically trying to like fly the airplane as the engine's still being built. But they've got this whole social network that is kind of replicating a lot of the different functionality of Twitter. So we're not actually talking about anything specific to Blue Sky in this conversation because this is time traveling back in 2019. And I just wanted to air this interview because I think it speaks to a lot of the opportunities of decentralization, but also how to create a centralized experience in order to launch these different applications. If we look at the analog of the metaverse right now, you can see applications like Rec Room and VRChat and Roblox and Fortnite and Minecraft. All of these experiences have closed wall gardens, social graphs, and ways to connect to your friends and have these different experiences. But when we look at the analog for what that looks like on the open web for OpenXR and the future of the open interoperable metaverse, there's only one other competing implementation right now, and that's the immersed space that I covered in the previous episode. And the Metaverse Standards Forum says that before they're going to create some of these open standards for the future of the metaverse, they need to have a number of different competing implementations because it's a bad idea to do R&D implementing a protocol or specification just with one instance. And so it's great that there's another potential option that's out there. And I just wanted to talk at a higher level 
to get a sense of the philosophical motivations for what is driving the decentralized version of Twitter, which is called Blue Sky. So that's what we're covering on today's episode of the Voices of VR podcast. So this interview with Jay happened on Friday, July 19th, 2019 at the Decentralized Web Camp in California. So with that, let's go ahead and dive right in. I'm Jay Graber, and right now I'm building Happening. It's a social event site as sort of alternative to Facebook events that gives you more invite methods for getting people to come to events. Well, maybe you could uh, give me a bit more context as to your background and your journey into what it is that you're doing now and the steps you did to get there. Sure, yeah. So I started out working actually in digital rights activism, working at nonprofits like Free Press and Fight for the Future that lobby on issues like surveillance laws and pushing for like more consumer privacy laws and then also the net neutrality campaigns. And then after what we perceived as a big win on net neutrality a few years ago by getting Title II passed, I had decided that I wanted to leave the nonprofit industry because I felt like there was too much was dependent on political wins that change and don't create enough lasting change. And so I really wanted to be directly building tools that would have more of an impact, or at least I felt like that's where, what would make me most satisfied. So then I went off and learned how to code, and I moved to SF, did a coding boot camp, and then went to the hackathon at the Internet Archive and met someone who hired me at my first programming job. It was a blockchain startup. And I'd been interested in virtual currency in college, and I was really excited about that space then. And then after that job, I went and worked at a cryptocurrency mine, and then joined this team of people building Zcash, a privacy-focused cryptocurrency, and helped launch that, and then worked there as a developer for a few years. And then last year, when all the news was hitting about Facebook, the Cambridge Analytical scandal, things like that, I'd left Facebook three years ago after I no longer worked in nonprofits, didn't have to use it to communicate, and I was so frustrated. There was no good alternatives for people to just leave with their data and migrate somewhere else. At this point, I felt like I was sure someone should have done something that was a good alternative. So then I started playing around with decentralized web projects to like see if there was ways to create good off-ramps. And ultimately, I've settled with building what I am building now, which is just a normal centralized React app, because I wanted to get something out fast, and I didn't have to think too much about you know the back end or the protocols, because like when you're building on the distributed web, it's like a choice of database, basically. Like Your users don't care that much. They just care about how it feels to use. So I was trying to get the UX right. Yeah, that's where I'm at. And then my history with this event, the Decentralized Web Conference, is I went to the first one four years ago, held at the Internet Archive, and met Zuko there, who hired me to work on Zcash. And then I went the one two years ago, and it's been like a touch point in my life. Yeah, I was here at the second one in 2018, and so for me, I just see that there's a lot of really interesting decentralized architectures and had these different discussions. Like I, last year, I talked to Vint Cerf, one of the co-inventors of the internet, and I was really asking him to seriously consider moving away from surveillance capitalism and maybe see if there's some other model with decentralized systems. And he was like, well, you know, they're not really fully baked that we could actually adopt any of these yet. And he was really seeing that the existing business model was that there's the benefit of being able to provide all this information to people and have a business model economically. So there's other, I guess, issues of what is the alternative economic model to really sustain this. And so if you're not doing something like surveillance capitalism and doing all these things that may be encroaching on people's privacy, then how do you actually pay for and make this a sustainable venture? So I'm trying to figure that out right now. I've just been working on it by myself and I've taken no funding. So I've kind of delayed some of those questions and been thinking about it. 
I think one important thing is to have your incentives aligned with your users so that you don't build up a model based around, say, advertising, which the real problem with that is not that users are shown distracting ads or anything, it's that it incentivizes the business to serve the people who are their advertisers, and those are their real customers, and their users are the product that they're collecting the attention of to sell. And so rather than doing something that relies solely on that kind of revenue, which really does not have your incentives aligned to serve your users, I'd like to have something where users pay more directly for services in some way, so that that way it's a more direct business model, I think, that allows the business to really serve the needs of users. Like what this would be and whether it would work at scale, I think maybe the reason, you know, I think Facebook doesn't operate this way is there's a lot more money to be made with like this data-driven advertising model, but maybe if I try to bootstrap this and grow organically, I can build up a good user-based revenue model, is my thinking currently. Yeah, when I brought that potential up for Vint Cerf to say, hey, maybe people should pay for the service, and he said, yeah, you know, but there's been many iterations of how people got access to the internet, and feeling like you were on the clock whenever you were looking at the internet, then that changed the behaviors as if like you would have to pay for how much time you were using. So people would constantly have to do this calculation in their mind whether or not what they were doing was worth the money that they would be paying either through the internet service provider or whatnot. So I guess in some ways there's the challenge of can you find a way to have some people pay and have more access to things or if there's a tiered model where everybody gets the same base services for free but if you want the premium services you can pay for but you never know, thought about how to think about that trade-off between the accessibility of people who may not have as many resources to still have access to these services and how to create a tiered dynamic or a small number of people paid but be able to still sustain it oh yeah definitely that's one thing that I would incorporate some sort of tiered thing or special exemptions like you know I think Eventbrite or some other services may have like some different pricing models for like nonprofits or like Salesforce has like a nonprofit pricing model so things like that can definitely be done to improve access the thing about building a service that you want people to pay for though is it has to be worth paying for and even with the centralized service the reason I'm doing this is like I really want to get the UX right I want to make it like a beautiful pleasurable experience to use the problem with building on the dweb right now and trying to build like a dweb app that even replicates the same functionality of a centralized service is you generally don't even come close to that level of ease of use and so someone's not going to pay for a worse product so that's one of the problems with like you know building a an app that you could fund through user revenue on the dweb right now it's just not at that level where it feels really great and intuitively usable and like worth paying for as something better than existing alternatives. Well, with the GDPR, it, in some sense, it's trying to make the data that you put onto these different networks accessible because it's your data and you own it. And it seems like that there's a certain level of portability and data portability that that has been implemented across all these different services. And so is that something that you plan on taking advantage of, of like people exporting all their data and be able to import it into your happening website? Uh, definitely. Right now, that's actually something I played around with last year. And right now I'm focusing more just on the single use case of like making it easy for people to plan small events because I'm just one person and you have to do one thing really well. It's kind of my philosophy right now. So what I did last year was I was really focused on how do you get interoperability? How do you provide easier ways for your users to move around when they're unhappy with the service? And 
rather than just trying to build a whole ecosystem over here in like centralized web world, I think we need to provide more on and off ramps into the existing services we already use. And so build bridges between them, take some of that data that people want to export from Twitter or Facebook and like feed it into a new service, and then also give them their data in an easy export form that they can move to a different one. There's a secure Scuttlebutt application called Patchwork, and I experimented with building a Patchwork to Twitter bridge, and so you make your post in Patchwork, and then there's a button that says Post to Twitter, and it's, Patchwork is open source, so you can just do this. It's pretty great. And that was fun. I'm not sure if anyone's using it. It was just an experiment. And another thing I did was take your Facebook export data and your Twitter data and take it and feed it into a form that you could like consume in different social media feeds. So I like fed it into Patchwork and like imported my old Twitter tweets. Then I was thinking of doing that on Happening back when I was trying to build more of like just a social network. But the reason I didn't take it in a pure social network direction is the bootstrapping problem, which is, you know, you go to a new social network and the whole value of it is in the network effect. So if you're the only one there, let's say you've you know, migrated your post over from Facebook and Twitter and now you're posting on your new social network, it's still extremely lonely and boring because you maybe only have two friends on it, right? And so doing something that is more targeted towards like a dense cluster of people to start with, like events, is I think a much smarter way to go about building something like a new social network. Yeah, and it sounds like that the interoperability allows you to take advantage of syndicating out your content and sending it out to other clients through the APIs like Twitter to be able to post on a decentralized network and then be able to still feel like you get those network effects by having that interoperability. And I guess I'm curious to hear if you've had a strategy in your mind in terms of because the D-Web's not ready to be up and running, that you're doing a centralized approach, but if you're really focusing on the user experience and trying to solve a problem and create a compelling enough of a user experience on top of that problem that's being solved, but that you can eventually, if it takes off, think about how to decentralize it. Is that the plan to get something that's actually solving a problem, but then once you are able to start to build up, then think about how to decentralize it? Yeah, definitely. And I've been thinking about different ways to do this. And I think one principle I've tried to keep in mind is, you know, you shouldn't have to try to sell your users on the merits of technical decentralization as a thing they should care about ideologically because most people don't and they just want something that works well. So only bring it in where it makes sense for your use case. So what is the kind of use case that lets people just experience a new functionality that the DWeb provides without having to, you know, have it like hammered into them that this is like good for them because it's like a better data model and they just don't care about all that. So been thinking a lot about the properties of like, you know, what is decentralization really good for? What are the cases in which it makes sense to build into a consumer product? And I think the two top ones for me have been properties of censorship resistance and offline availability. So the kind of like resilience. And so I've been thinking about cases in which I can incorporate peer-to-peer -peer functionality to provide those kinds of features. What do you see as the trade-offs are between the centralization and decentralization in terms of like you know, when I talked to Vince Cerf, he was talking about like economies of scale for centralization, for example. And but there are other aspects of the advantages. I'm just curious to hear, like, because you decided to go with centralization, what are the advantages and, and disadvantages of that, and then kind of vice versa from decentralization? Yeah, um, I could go on and on. Maybe I'll just start this rambling list. Definitely economies of scale. Also, I think ability to quickly like iterate and update on the whole functioning of the system because you know it like all is can be controlled from one point and so you're you know pushing out software changes and like radically change how things work and you have to worry about like protocol upgrades or getting everyone to like 
it's a coordination effort to get like a decentralized software update all working across all the clients, you know? And so, yeah, like drastic protocol upgrades are much easier. Also, I guess there's like the technical advantage pros and cons and the like economic social ones. The social coordination, I think often it results in better speed. The technical advantages often result in what is a more familiar user interface. I won't say overall better because maybe in a world where decentralized applications are really working well, it will become also intuitive to manage your keys and things like that that would be required for a full decentralized world. Or maybe the services will have evolved to make it easy. But right now, it is easier to build good, familiar UX on a centralized service because users don't have to think about, you know, like, oh, which device are my keys stored on? Like, why is this out of sync with this other thing? Why is this not loading? Like, that's all delegated to the application service provider to figure out those problems. And what does uh, decentralization give you? Decentralization gives you the ability to not rely on any failures from one central point. Much more resilient and robust. There's no problem with like the server just going down and the whole system failing. There's no problem with the service becoming corrupted and making changes you dislike to the whole system. There's the ability to really separate the data layer from the application layer so that people could have like different user interfaces over some common data protocol. So, you know, Twitter's rolling out these new UX changes. Some people love it, other people hate it, and other people wish they could just like stay with the old version of Twitter, but Twitter doesn't really let you do that. It's just one monolithic software thing that pushes these changes out. And so if you have a more decentralized ecosystem, you'll maybe have like one data stream of like your secure scuttlebutt log or whatever your social media protocol is, and then you'll have many different clients working over it. Like Mastodon works this way. It's federated, but it's closer, it's more decentralized, right? And so you have like different clients that interact with the rest of the Mastodon ecosystem, and they can all look very different. Also, offline connectivity. So right now, if you're not connected to the main internet or you don't have cell service, even if you have a router and all the stuff set up locally, like a lot of your devices aren't designed to work well peer-to-peer, but if you design them all to work peer-to-peer -peer or offline first, then even in an environment like this, out in the country, without main connectivity, we can have our own little island of peer-to-peer -peer connectivity. And you know, it really makes sense sometimes for some devices to work like this. Like your phone is like this really great advanced computer, basically, but it's bricked when cell service and internet's down in like the case of a natural disaster. And so I think a lot of peer-to-peer technology is also pushing towards just making these devices talk better directly to each other. It's both good for resilience and also for the ability to have more freedom in terms of not relying on decisions made by centralized service providers. It seems like I've been seeing more outages of huge services like Cloudflare will have an outage and then big swaths of the internet will go down or Facebook and Instagram having these outages for long periods of time or even Twitter going down even within the last couple of weeks. And so it seems like that even with these content delivery networks and Amazon Web Services or even Cloudflare that the dream of the web was that it was going to have these decentralized aspects, but then there seems to be like these economies of scale that have driven these centralized points, but then if you have some sort of DDoS attack or it goes down, then basically all that internet goes down at the same time. So I don't know if I'm just noticing it more, if it seems to be happening more frequently that you have these centralized distribution points failing or going down and we're kind of noticing the downfalls of centralization in that way. Yeah, I've been noticing that too, especially recently in the past few weeks. And every time GitHub goes down or something, people are like, oh, 
like we have Git, this like great decentralized thing, and now GitHub goes down and nobody can collaborate. <laughs> yeah. So for you, what are some of the either biggest open questions that you're trying to answer or open problems you're trying to solve? I think UX and user adoption is a really big problem. Before this, I was working in the cryptocurrency space. It's also a problem there, whether you're talking about like peer-to-peer -peer social apps or blockchain cryptocurrency payments. Just like, how do you make this stuff really easy and seamless to use in a way that isn't like a sacrifice of convenience on the user's behalf? And I've been thinking a lot about the trade-offs between values like privacy and convenience or freedom and convenience. Yeah, what do you think that you've learned from the cryptocurrency world that you're applying to what you're doing now? The need for better UX, <laughs> the difficulty of key management in all of these systems as like one of the really thorny problems that holds up a lot of adoption. And you know, the stakes are higher actually in the cryptocurrency world for things like key management because here in the D-Web world, like you have a centralized social media account tied to your own key on a, some laptop and you lose it and you're like, oh no, I have to start over my social media account, but you just pick up where you left off, I guess, with some new posts and find your old friends again. The cryptocurrency world, that could entail the loss of any amount of money from small to very large. And so having the stakes heightened in that sense kind of makes you super aware. Also, like being super aware of like how network partitions affect the topology of the decentralized networks. Like, it's a decentralized network that all has to stay in sync, though. It needs like, some global state. So when things partition, you get like forks and these like, weird behaviors. And it's also a very like, adversarial thinking space. Like, you're assuming that everyone wants to break the system. So you approach things with this much higher focus on like, security and robustness than I think you need to do when like, the stakes are lower. Are there any applications that you're using on the decentralized web? So I use Patchwork sometimes, which is this like desktop client that works on secure Scuttlebutt. It's pretty fun. It takes a long time to load and like keep sync with all the posts. So I don't use it too often, but it is interesting to like get on because there's very different conversations happening there than like on Twitter or other social media. So it's like this community having in-depth discussions about the technology and like visions for society. I guess I use like cryptocurrency apps and things like that, if you're counting that. And some of them are more decentralized, like my Ether wallet or MetaMask and things. And then some things are more like Coinbase and like more centralized. So there's a spectrum of services there. And I think that's more developed because like more money has gone into that and more attention in the past few years. Are there any talks or discussions that you're looking forward to having here at the Decentralized Web Camp? Let's see, I was helping out today, so I didn't get a chance to really enjoy it. I kind of just want to meet everyone and see what people are working on, see what people are thinking in terms of new social networks and what kind of projects people are working on. I know several people have brought cool projects here, like Aether or some other things like that. I'm really curious to learn more about how they work. Right, and, uh, and finally, what do you think the ultimate potential of decentralized systems might be and what they might be able to enable? I mean, definitely preventing the whole internet from going down at once is like an important thing that they could do. They could enable better connectivity and access in places with poor access to the internet right now. So either kind of on the periphery of really internet-saturated areas or in cases of censorship or disaster when the internet goes out, either through like active government intervention or like things like natural disaster or cyber attacks that people can't really control. I think it could also, like some of the thoughts I've had about how you could build like a decentralized social media ecosystem is also maybe there's a way to 
change the way we think about like censorship and moderation here is like instead of having or maybe we'd have both kinds of spaces coexist right instead of just having the global village aspect of like a platform like Twitter or Facebook in which the people who work at Twitter or Facebook have to make all the judgment calls on like what to moderate and things like more decentralized social network communities it's really left up to the communities themselves to moderate and so maybe that's a solution that will make some people more happy is to have their discussions in communities where it's more self-policing rather than just one voice yeah right is there uh, anything else that's left unsaid that you like to say to the decentralized community ux and user adoption i think that's really important right now and also i think this is a good moment for it like i haven't watched too many waves of tech but i've looked a little bit at the history and things do seem to come in waves of interest and activity and so i think around the time that like Skype and Napster was happening in like what was that the 90s I was too young but it was an era of a lot of interest in like peer-to-peer applications and then there was this kind of lull and people like stopped working on it and then I think cryptocurrencies actually poured a ton of interest and enthusiasm back into the space not to mention funding in the past few years and so a lot of stuff is getting built out right now and then there's also it's like coincided with more social attention to issues like privacy and censorship and resilience when you know internet gets shut down in countries with protests and like natural disasters have been happening with a lot of frequency it seems like and so in all of these cases like internet after the hurricane in Puerto Rico or like you know in Hong Kong during the protests like these are all cases where peer to peer tech is something that's actually useful and should be brought into the conversation and these apps should be ready to use and ready to go and like when you know another scandal hits Facebook which happens about every 4 months it seems like now like stuff should be ready to go like it needs to get to that point where like we move when the timing is right and we do have like you know, as long as we want to work on this but in terms of like people really a good moment for building stuff out and getting adoption before you know things go too far in another direction i think this is like one of those very good moments yeah awesome great well thank you so much for joining me today on podcast so thank you thanks So that was Jay Graber at the time she was a founder of Happening which is an events platform. Again, this conversation happened back in July 19th, 2019, and starting on December 2021, she became the CEO of Blue Sky and is doing a really amazing job of leading this developer community and actually implementing a lot of the things that she's talking about here, which is this decentralized social network and having different centralized points to really nail the user experience and the onboarding but also thinking a lot about the moderation tools before they really open up to a broader community. they want to prototype and build out some of these different moderation tools in order to ensure that there's some way to have trust and safety in this decentralized network because it is a decentralized network it's basically a protocol so as she was talking about in this conversation there's going to be an aspect of being a little bit more resistance proof and so rather than having just one company like twitter unilaterally banning people or creating how the algorithms are being dispersed the whole idea with the AT protocol is to start to distribute some of these different aspects of the scaling of the moderation having more choice in algorithms and curating the health and having these new decentralized technologies to be able to implement some of this protocol jack back on december 11 2019 had a whole twitter thread where he was starting to talk about his vision for what he wanted to do with blue sky which was just those four points that i just named there and then jay actually became ceo in december of 2021 but 
leading up to that, she was actually a part of the Matrix chat room in 2020, helped lead the ecosystem review, and then the company was formally founded at the end of 2021. So she was working on a lot of this in the background as she was also running Happening. So yeah, just to tie this back more explicitly to virtual reality, since a lot of my listeners are coming from the XR world, I think there's something really compelling about having an ability to put a DNS text file on your web server that then could be called back and have this two-way communication to start to verify identities and have this self-sovereign identity that allows you to verify your identity across the web. So this is actually a huge feature of the AT protocol to start to have this cryptographically signed verification based upon whatever domain names that you have. Their implementation is actually a really elegant way that is able to have people verify who they are based upon what domains that they have control over. So there's actually a number of people who have started to integrate the AT protocol. Again, that's the protocol that's behind Blue Sky. This is the authenticated transfer protocol. So there's a number of folks who are starting to integrate this into like WordPress or create these 3GS spatial visualizations, or there's a group that created an application that was pulling in all this data as a part of Meta's presence hackathon. So having Skeet start to appear in a spatialized context. So you can start to imagine having lots of different ways, pulling in different streams and data into an immersive space. But also I think the more compelling aspect is potentially to have this social graph layer that's overlaid upon all these different websites. And just like the Immerse Space was able to do, have people know where you're at across these different open WebXR immersive spaces across the internet. So I'm not actually sure if the AT protocol is going to be robust enough to be able to serve some of these XR or metaverse applications. But yeah, I'm excited to see what some of the different developers are going to start to do. Because Twitter, when it was first starting up, it was encouraging a lot of these application developers to start to make all sorts of different third-party apps for the ecosystem. It actually catalyzed a whole lot of different innovation within the platform. And I'm seeing a lot of very similar things happening right now with a lot of the data that is in Blue Sky is public. If you have an account and an API key to be able to start to create your own visualizations or applications or lots of different ways that people are starting to play with these tools. It feels like the early days of Twitter as I'm on the social network right now. Once Elon Musk took over Twitter, I think a lot of folks were looking for some sort of refuge. People feeling like they either didn't feel safe or there's just a lot of like really weird censorship decisions that Elon Musk has been making, even just like blocking Substack links or blocking links to Mastodon or all sorts of like anti-competitive, anti-open web and anti-interoperability ethos that the open web is built upon. Kind of like this protectionistic mindset that is really antagonistic to a lot of the core users and, and actually destroying the whole verification system to basically make it so that if you just pay for a blue check mark that you are quote unquote verified, but not really verified. And so having something like Blue Sky is actually solving a lot of those verification issues in a very decentralized and elegant way. Have these DNS records and have this cryptographic handshake that is able to do this authentication. And so I think it's actually a viable way of having identity in the context of the social network, but I think across the open web, as you start to have a persistent identity across all these different websites. So for anyone who's uh, have a lot of different novelty domains, uh, this is your opportunity to start to claim that as your username on these different applications. So I can as the ultimate authority at this point for a lot of those username conventions. So lots of really interesting things that I think we covered here that for me, as I hear Jay talk about some of the different trade-offs between centralization versus decentralization, the benefits are the different aspects of the economies of scale. You can quickly iterate all the different functions and do protocol updates without having to propagate all those out. And so it's easier to do drastic protocol upgrades, which is actually currently happening right now with the AT protocol. 
there's a technical advantage. You can do more streamlined user interfaces and coordinate people and go quicker. And it's also easier to build familiar user interfaces with a centralized user experience. With the decentralization, you start to be a little bit more resilient and robust when you start to have these single points of failure. You have more of a problem if the system starts to get corrupted. You can separate the data layer from the application layer. There's a protocol that's serving all the different data and you can skin it in lots of different ways and even have your own algorithms as it moves forward. Really quite prescient in a lot of ways, uh, just hearing her talk about her vision of this decentralized social network and what would it look like to have social networking where you had a lot more agency and autonomy over your identity and your data. And also just your experience of how you're consuming all the different data that's coming in and having a little bit more algorithmic control and also all the different challenges around moderation. These are all the things that she's actually still currently thinking about and working on right now as the CEO of Blue Sky. I'll have to dig into a lot of these other 49 different interviews that I did at the Decentralized Web Summit back in 2018, 2019. I've published over a dozen of those conversations so far on the Voices of VR, but there's a lot of them that are very specific to this decentralization ethos that I think is going to be a part of the core architecture of the future of the open metaverse, which is why I went back in 2018 and 2019. It's just only now that the broader cultural and economic and technological context has come to the point where there's some stuff that's actually ready to start to launch out into the world. I mean, the cryptocurrency world has been building on top of all of these different technologies, but that's technology that's driven by adversarial aspects and libertarian values. And this is more of a commons-based values of trying to build some of this open web technologies, which is what the Internet Archive has been doing with the Decentralized Web Summit starting back in 2016 and then 2018 and then the Decentralized Web Camp in 2019, also in 2022 and 2023, which is coming up this summer. If you want to check it out, you can go chat with a lot of folks who are actually helping to build the future of the Decentralized Web and the Decentralized Metaverse. So that's all that I have for today. And I just wanted to thank you for listening to the Voices of VR podcast. And if you enjoyed the podcast, and please do spread the word, tell your friends, and consider becoming a member of the Patreon. This is a listener supported podcast. And so I do rely upon donations from people like yourself in order to continue to bring in this coverage. So you can become a member and donate today at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. Thanks for listening. 